I don't know how you got the picture with the bird in it, Dave, but that's pretty good. With a name like Video Dave, you got a reputation to keep up. So uh, that's what you missed. There's the, uh, the other view. That's the folks that are out there. And then uh, the, one of the coolest parts we do every Easter Sunday is we have a baptism right there on the beach as part of our service. And I think the next slide, we have four folks today that were baptized this morning. Uh, David, our drummer, was one of them. Um, so that was very cool. Uh, Kathy was another. And her friend Rose and Doreen. So we had uh, four folks this morning baptized. Very exciting, very neat, kind of the, the perfect day, in, as it were, to uh, baptize, the depict the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's always a highlight for moi. Now, I have to apologize because I know this is going to happen. This is a new microphone. And on the first hand, I feel like either Britney Spears or Madonna wearing this thing. It feels like it's about this big out here. Um, and so I just want to fiddle with it. And I know what you're thinking. I've said this before. With ears this size, how could a microphone slip? But it's been driving me nuts all day. So I'm going to try not to play with it, because I'm sure it makes a really bad noise if I play with it. But when I do, you've been warned. Fair enough? Okay, now to the sermon proper. I always start Easter Sunday by saying this, because I think it's important to start here. I believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. He was dead, and he was then alive. I don't see there's any room for debate on those things as far as the historical record. I I, I believe that, that that is why I'm here, that he literally died all the way dead, Uh, And he literally bodily came out of the grave, appeared to over, what, 500 people at once and demonstrated his thing. So the reason we're here today, the reason we can celebrate, the reason we're here every Sunday is because of what happened in history. In fact, if you were to open uh, the the New Testament, many of the, the messages that are preached, like in the book of Acts, the substance of what they said was Jesus rose. Jesus rose, Jesus rose. It's sort of how they put it. And, and when you compare that to religions elsewhere, there are lots of religions that have very important figures, lots of important figures in history. For instance, um, a religion that's in the news a lot nowadays is uh, Islam, and there is a mosque in Medina that has the grave, the tomb of Muhammad there, which is interesting. Uh, Confucius, we've been studying Sunday mornings for a while Eastern religions and Confucius there is in Eastern China a tomb or the Buddha his ashes apparently were scattered in eight different locations around the globe if you want to talk about you know political leaders different philosophies talk about Marx or Darwin or some of the others and you're going to find a grave for all of these folks but one person that is no longer buried anywhere is Jesus Christ and because of that we have a lot of a lot, a lot to celebrate today. Now, it's interesting to me, particularly in this, this light, because a lot of people, when you talk about Jesus, like to talk about the good things that he did or said. And he did a lot of remarkable things. I mean, when you think about his teaching, the people that heard him teach or preach said he taught and preached like nobody they'd ever heard before, as one having authority. They, they noticed it. There was something different about it. 
I, I heard somebody define preaching or teaching with authority as the kind of teaching that after you hear it, you actually want to do what it said instead of forget it five minutes later. So that seems to be one way to look at it. Jesus taught, and he taught some remarkable things. He taught the opposite at times of what people thought. Like, for instance, if somebody smacks you on one cheek, what are you to do? Turn the other cheek. That's interesting. That's kind of not what we would normally want to do. He says if somebody asks for your, your cloak, not only give them your cloak, but give them your tunic as well. He says, pray for your enemies. I don't pray enough for my friends. No offense to my friends that are gathered here. But Jesus said to pray for your enemies and those who despitefully use you. These, these are admirable things. And a lot of people like to talk about Jesus and, and look at those things, like on the Sermon on the Mount. They like to look at how he treated people, how by the fact he was often with the outcasts of society. We looked a few weeks ago at the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus' response stood in stark contrast to those around who, who said, let's just stone her to death and tried to get Jesus to do that, but he would have no part of it. He treated her with dignity, uh, unlike those who were around her. We could talk about how even the, on the edges he was accused of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners that tax collectors thing hurts really bad this week right how many days left till the filing deadline two somebody's paying attention yeah tax collector i mean and really i like that that there are sinners and then there are tax collectors can i get an amen oh no we'll leave that alone so so that was the kind of of person that that he was that that he would seem admirable and a lot of people really want to hold on to those admirable teachings and and the way he treated people and and say boy that's what i like about jesus but but this whole idea of he rose from the dead can we just kind of not talk about that i don't want to i don't want to think about that here's the problem one problem there's a lot of problems with that here's one problem the reason you know about all of those things that he taught the reason you know about how he treated people is because people wrote it down and the people who wrote it down were absolutely convinced that he also rose from the dead. Either that, or they thought, how can we get people to listen to Jesus? I know, we'll make up a story that he rose from the dead, and then they'll believe all the other stuff. Which sounds interesting until you think of, how do you like it when somebody lies to you? If somebody lies to you, like to your faces, this is what I want you to believe, and you find out it's a lie, do you basically for the rest of your life say this is somebody i can trust and i want to learn more from them or do you say you know what everything they say is now suspect and if it's the case that these people who wrote down these books of the new testament the bible that we that we read the account of jesus's life manufactured this huge lie that jesus was dead and is alive just to kind of get some traction on the teachings of jesus well that would make all that they wrote suspect. Not to mention, when you see them early on in the book of Acts, if you read some of the things that they talked about, after they went out and the church began to explode in growth, they weren't going out telling people, hey, here's what you need to know. Jesus was a really amazing moral teacher. And here are some of his teachings. And we want you to know what he taught, because if you don't know what he taught, you're going to miss some great things. No, what they were going around and saying is, he was dead, and now he isn't. He had 
been crucified and buried and you all saw it and the tomb is now empty and so we had no choice but to believe in him the other problem with thinking of jesus as a great moral teacher is if he's a great moral teacher he said some nutty stuff like i mean really he did usually people that say these things we don't go around saying oh that's a great moral teacher people that claim to be god for instance if you've seen me you've seen the father i and the father are one now let's just say you were having a conversation with somebody and they were telling you some things oh that's interesting that's interesting that's interesting and then they said oh by the way uh, i am god so you should listen to what i say you're going to walk away and call your friend and go, hoo, 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 hoo. I don't know about that anymore. You guys are a little off. That person is, uh, I don't know, might need, might need some help. They seem to have some delusions, right? And you would probably discount a lot of what they said because of that sort of stuff that's off. I mean, Jesus made some amazing claims about himself that if all you want to do is talk about his teaching presents problems, because he comes across at times as a bit of a madman if if he's not who he says he is and if he didn't rise from the dead but if he did and i maintain that he did all that he said is validated all those outlandish claims suddenly make sense you know a lot of people look at the resurrection of jesus and we're going to look at an account today uh, around the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24. I promise we'll get to Scripture very soon. Um, and if you want to start turning there, you can do that, or we're going to throw most of the verses up on the screen as well. Um, one of the things about these documents that, that we call the New Testament, the Bible, is they are remarkably close in time to the days that Jesus walked the earth. In fact, if you were to look at those who study uh, ancient texts and ancient documents, there are over 20,000 documents, scrolls, fragments of different parts of the New Testament. Over 20,000 that date within a few decades of the actual event, the actual writing of that original document of, let's say, the Gospel of John or whatever. And there's different ages for different ones. They go very close in time. And, and in that that should give us some confidence because not only do we have over 20,000 documents, some of them very close in time to the actual events that they're recording, the actual time they were written down. What we don't have, by the way, is what are called the original autographs, like the actual scroll that Matthew wrote down what we call now the Gospel of Matthew or John wrote down what we call the Gospel of John or so on. We don't have those original documents, but we have copies, pieces, and parts and fragments very close in time to when those originals were written and overwhelmingly all of these pieces parts agree in fact over 20,000 new testament documents of that period of time in history if you look at other historical writings the next closest after the new testament at 20 plus thousand is uh, about 600 and something i think it's 643 i didn't write these statistics down and i want to say it's the writings of plato but i could be off on that it's one of those kind of greek writings the writings of plato now let me ask you did you ever go to your history class in school and somebody said we're going to read the writings of plato now we don't actually know if these are the words of plato because 
we have very few documents that date around the time. In fact, the ones that we have are about a 800 to 1,000 years after the time that these were written. So it's possible there was corruption in Plato's writings and the things he taught. They could have been amended and, and myth could have been built in. So I don't want you to take Plato seriously. We're just presenting this as a possibility. Anybody hear that in class? No. But I would bet if you were to talk about the, the New Testament, particularly Jesus, and maybe even specifically the resurrection of Jesus, you would hear a lot of people say, well, you know, what happens is these religious-type things, over time, myth sort of develops in. And you know, the Bible didn't come into being until a few hundred years after the time of Jesus, so in that intervening period, myth was added and things were put in there that sort of inflated the story of Jesus so on and so forth, they might say. The problem is, though, again, we don't have to wait a couple of 300 years for all of these documents to be compiled. We actually have parts of the documents within a few decades of the actual time that, let's say, Luke or John or Peter or one of the other authors of the New Testament wrote it down. If all that doesn't make you think twice, how about this? Jesus had a brother. James. James becomes one of the leaders of the first century church. When Jesus was growing up and starting his ministry, James was not a follower, a believer in Jesus. In fact, James and his family often were sort of insulted by Jesus and kept him at a distance. But the, the early church starts, the first Followers of Jesus kind of get together and the message spreads. And James not only joins the movement, he becomes a leader of the movement, which makes me wonder what would it take for you to be convinced your brother is the Son of God? How many of you have brothers? Yeah? What would it take for him to do? What would he, would raising, rising from the dead maybe give you a second thought? That, that might, that might start the conversation. But that's James's story. The, the boy he grew up with that became Jesus and lived, he came to believe he was the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and he wrote a book of the New Testament, and he purported as Jesus had risen from the dead. This is what we have historically. In fact, it's eight or nine Witnesses, first century witnesses, eyewitnesses, some of them, others who compiled data and interviewed eyewitnesses, that we have accounts today, a couple thousand years later, that show a belief central to the first Christians, the earliest church, the first followers of Jesus, however you want to refer to them, that they absolutely believed Jesus died and then rose again. Now, I'd love to tell you they believed it right away. But when you read, and we, we spent a little time in John this morning out on the beach, when you read John chapter 20, and if you were to read Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, you would see on that first Easter Sunday, the earliest Christians went to the tomb because they fully expected Jesus to be dead. They didn't 
hold a vigil outside the tomb going okay he told us destroy this temple and three days later i'll rebuild it it's been three days guys let's go the sabbath is over the sun is down this passover let's go to the tomb let's set up you know light candles let's count it down ten nine none of that they're actually in hiding afraid for their lives certain that if they killed jesus they would be next or certainly on rome's hit list they're petrified they're scared and the few people that do go to the tomb happen to be some of jesus's followers who are women looking to anoint his body for burial when he had been crucified if you remember that story what happened was joseph of arimathea and nicodemus petitioned Pilate and were able to secure the body of jesus now that was unusual usually crucified people did not get a proper burial they were considered criminals outcasts uh, treason against rome and often were just taken off the cross and thrown outside the city in kind of the dump pile the ash heap they were just rotted and and such but these two men uh, nicodemus and joseph of arimathea petition Pilate. Pilate says sure you can have the body they they bury him in a tomb and these two men hurriedly because they're getting ready for the passover sabbath that's coming up hurriedly prepare his body for burial and the women wait three days because they have to and they're desperate to go fix what the men messed up right ladies is that true has your man ever messed something up you had to fix should we just have open mic would that be edifying for the body this morning it'd be fun nonetheless but that's what they that's what they're they're going not because they think he's alive but because they're sure he's dead and because of their love for him and because women unfortunately were considered second-class citizens and weren't going to be subject to the same persecution his male followers were might had a little more freedom to go care for the body of this man that they love but when they get to the tomb the stone has been rolled away and even then as we talked about this morning they don't immediately assume that jesus is alive they actually assume somebody stole his body that one of the enemies of jesus in that area was so intent on shaming him that they were going to take his body out of the tomb and desecrate it or who knows what or maybe even some of the officials were hiding it i don't they didn't know but they never assumed that the reason the tomb was empty was because jesus had rose again which brings us to our text today, Luke chapter 24. We're going to jump in at verse 13. If you have your, your Bible and you've turned there, um, this is the account of the, the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. Verses 1 through 12 kind of tell the story of the resurrection that we, we briefly went over. Verse 13 says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So can you imagine this thing? I mean, they're, they're, they have been privy to all that's going on. You don't miss what happened that preceding week. Palm Sunday, last Sunday we get together and we remember the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And because of the passover celebration the city had swelled to maybe a couple of hundred thousand people going to jerusalem to celebrate this holy feast there because that was kind of the headquarters that was where you wanted to be and all of these people that had come many of them whether they were on that road coming down the mount of olives if not they had certainly heard about the commotion that jesus caused if they weren't on the road they may have been in the temple because that was jesus's next stop when he went in and upset the apple carts of the temple 
you would have certainly, on a religious holiday like that, heard about a commotion at the temple because that was your destination too. If they had heard of that and the, the, the excitement in the city already over Passover was building, they certainly had known that, well, Rome wanted to make a statement as well. And as was often their plan, they would find some rebels among the Jews and crucify them because that's how you kept the rebels aware of your power. And whether they were part of the crowd that yelled about Jesus crucify him or whether they were part of those who knew that out on that hill we call Golgotha just outside the city, several had been crucified. Well, we don't know, but I'm sure they couldn't have missed it. Even if they missed all of that, the Bible says that when Jesus died, there was an earthquake. They probably felt that. There was darkness. There were some tangible signs you couldn't miss if you were anywhere in the area. They knew something was going on in this city. And these men on the road to Emmaus, probably making their way outside the city because the, the celebration was over, they were m- moving back home. What do you think they'd be talking about? Well, all the stuff that had gone on. That was the craziest Passover. Have you ever seen anything like that? Can you imagine? I mean, oy vey. I'm sure that's what they said. I'm a Rosenbaum, I can say that. It's okay. And, you know, they're just walking, talking about all the upheaval, all the events that had everybody's attention. And to not even realizing it, Jesus comes and walks with them. Verse 17, he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the... Only Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he said. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, meaning Jesus, they did not see. So even these men, having heard the testimony of the women, still weren't convinced. There was just too many loose ends. After all, dead people usually stay dead. Crucified people, especially, don't just shake that off. And so even with their testimony, they weren't sure. They're still talking about it. They know what it's about, but they're not sure. Um, He said to them, this is Jesus talking, red letters, right? How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory this is my favorite verse in this whole passage verse 27 and beginning with moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself holy mackerel i am thinking that was one humdinger stem winder of a sermon that would have been the one to hear. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, we got, we got the text of. Pretty remarkable. But that one, that would have been remarkable. That would have been a, a just, I wanted to say amazing, but that word's overused. What's another good word for amazing? I mean, not jumping on the couch amazing, Tom Cruise style, but what? I mean, what do we got? 
astounding, epic, awesome, stupendous. Does that about cover it? Just this moment where they're walking down the road and Jesus tells them his story. It's interesting. It says he starts with Moses. Moses referred to as the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, early on, chapter 3. I'm guessing. We don't know what he said, but I kind of feel like he started there. Because in Genesis 3, we get the story of the fall. Adam and Eve, the serpent, sin, the curse of the fall happens. And chapter 3, as God's enumerating the curse, and one of the, the things he curses is the serpent, the snake, he says, you will bruise his heel, but he the offspring of the woman will crush your head. And we know from the very earliest pages of the Bible, there's this prophetic promise from God that he's going to do something even when sin has entered the world. We've been studying uh, Tony Evans' victory in spiritual warfare. In the first passage, I love this thing. We talked about it just this last week again. He, he has this view of scripture where he says all of all of creation all scripture is like this move counter move between god and the enemy god and satan and god creates all that is uh, he creates adam and eve that's his move he creates mankind in his image the bible says and what does satan do just what we talked about the serpent comes in and he deceives them and they eat and so they lose the blessing of god the garden and they're kicked out of the garden and then god comes in and he provides coverings for them he provides, they try that whole fig leaf thing. I'm thinking that was probably not only uncomfortable, but inadequate. So God says, let me help you out here and provides uh, leather for them to be clothed. And, and so there it is, they've rebelled, but that doesn't help. Even though they've provided covering, they begin to, to prosper again. The kids come along. What's the thing that happens in the next chapter? Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And Satan makes another counter move to God's move. Looks like things are going to happen. He cuts off uh, Abel, the, the, the one that would be the godly line, and, and Cain is, is kind of exiled, and, and so what's God going to do? Well, here comes the birth of Seth and the restoration of, of that godly line. But after that, Satan not done. Along comes Nimrod, out of whom his line comes the, the civilizations of eventually Babylon and, and the Tower of Babel, this religion that said we can reach God on our own. And of course, we know that God confuses the language, and that doesn't work. And so God's next move is to call out for himself a people and he finds in Ur of the Chaldees Abram who would later become known as Abraham and he says the most remarkable thing to Abraham he says Abraham I'm making a covenant with you and through you and your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed it's a remarkable promise because we don't have to do much but to turn on the news to find out most of the time in the world Nations don't try to bless other nations, do they? We, we see a lot of news, and I didn't hear on the news the last week, well, let me tell you about nations such and so that wanted to bless another nation. You know, there's other things that happen between nations. Nations try to conquer nations. Nations try to, to exploit other nations and so on. Not many nations bless nations. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to start with you, and we're going to build this nation. It's going to be the people of Israel, my chosen people. I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you well eventually satan has to counter that so he grabs the the israelites and sends them off into bondage 
in Egypt and 400 years or so of bondage there until God finds on the backside of nowhere this man Moses who he sends into Pharaoh let my people go and sends the plagues we just talked about that good Friday through the, the look at the Passover and, and the people are delivered and they go into the promised land the, pro- the land that God had promised that would be the place where they would prosper and, and eventually it looks good but what's Satan's move well the people need a king we want to be just like everybody else we want a king like all the other nations. And, and the prophet Samuel says, they've rejected me. And what does God say? No, it's not you. You've, they've rejected Samuel. They've rejected me. And he relents and he gives them a king. But ultimately, God uses that to bring to the throne David, a man after God's own heart. But of course, Satan has in reserve good old Bathsheba. It's bathing on the roof next door. Not a good, not a good look for David. And he does the unthinkable. And from that, his line comes Solomon, who does some amazing things, including building the temple. But then, well, over a thousand wives and concubines. He was a busy fellow, yeah? (laughs) Over a thousand people to tell him what to do. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. I hope my wife's not watching. (laughs) And of course, he intermarries as part of that, and these foreign uh, religions come in until the kingdom is now divided, and, and Satan has made his move, and God sends prophets to try to warn and call the people back, and they might for a little while, but then they don't, until ultimately... Um, we enter this period of time we call the intertestamental period or the 400 years of silence as some people talk about it the end of the the old testament prophets in malachi until we get in matthew and mark and luke and john the account of the birth of messiah and so god having made all of these moves in history now decides i'm not in in the past he said i'm gonna i'm gonna find men and i'm gonna use them And in this case, in the New Testament, he breaks that silence, not by finding somebody, but by sending his son, by he himself coming down to fix the mess that is creation. And Satan thinks, now is the time to make my final move. And Satan, through all the things that happen, eventually gets to the point where the Son of God is hanging on a cross. The Old Testament says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And maybe the enemy at that moment thought, I've won. I've countered every move God has made throughout history. I have finally stopped him, his own son, crucified. This has got to be the end. And then God made the real final move. When on that Easter Sunday... The stone was rolled away and Jesus stepped out of the grave. It is a remarkable thing. I don't know if that was what Jesus' sermon was, but if I was writing it for him, that's something I would have written. He didn't ask me for help. No surprise there. But that's the kind of thing I imagine he might have said. He said, look at all of this history. He's talking to people leaving Jerusalem, Jewish people that share that heritage is God's chosen people and share that history of God's activity on their behalf and they have seen in Jerusalem the very culmination of what God had planned before the foundation of the earth 
Revelation would tell us he was crucified. And so they had seen that happen, and he had risen from the dead, and they still weren't sure. They didn't even, as he went through all of this, understand who he was. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Still don't know it's him. Still don't understand who's talking to them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Could you imagine? And in fact, it goes on. I don't, we don't even have to imagine. It tells us they got up. Oh, excuse me. I went too far. Verse 32. They ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They looked back when they finally got who that man was that walked with them and understood and everything came together for them. And all that they thought was lost had suddenly been turned completely around and they knew something was happening. I think it's fascinating that it was when he took bread and broke it that that was the moment the Bible says God opened their eyes. If you were here Friday, you know we went through um, some of the elements of the traditional Jewish Passover Seder. And we, we looked at how perhaps the ways Jesus took those elements, like the bread and the cup, and gave them new meaning. And if you were here, I know you know I gave you some homework. That's it. I'm not going to ask you if you did it, because this is not a pop quiz. Isn't that exciting? But I'm going to read it to you anyway. Psalm 22, verse 1, starts out this way. It's a familiar verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I told you to read that, because that psalm starts... In fact, the notes above it, if you have your Bible and you were to look there, it says, to the tune of the dough of the morning. And that, those aren't things that were added later, by the way. In Hebrew, those are actual the, on the manuscript. They're not things that were editorial things, like the chapters and verses and some things. Those are later editions. But that heading is original to the, the Hebrew text. And it says, to the tune of the dough of the morning. And, and so what happens in the next 30-plus verses of this psalm, this psalm was put to music... And they would sing it as part of their worship. And I think one of the reasons Jesus said this from the cross wasn't only because of the agony he was feeling as he bore the sin of the world, but also because he wanted them to sing the song. Why would he want them to sing the song? Well, let's fast forward a few verses. Verse 16, 17, and 18. This is what it says. Same psalm, Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Next verse goes on. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. And then verse 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Have I read that anywhere else? All of that happens at the crucifixion. That, that thing about his bones, one of the prophecies of the Old Testament is none of his bones would be broken, and I think that's what that has in mind. So we've got the piercing his hands and his feet. We've got the none of his bones broken. We've got the casting lots for his clothing. And I think he referenced that psalm and put that song in people's head because they get to those verses, at least in the English Bible. I don't know what verse it is in the original Hebrew stanza, but nonetheless, they would start singing it, and they would think, and they pierced his hands and his feet. I don't know the tune, though, of the morning, so I'm just making this up. Um, 
I'm not going to sing. Anyway, they get to that part, and they're thinking, they're, yeah, that sounds familiar, and they're talking about it, and they get there, like, wait a minute, pierced hands and feet. Wait, that's what's happened, and cast lots for his clothing. Well, well they're doing that now. Wait, could Psalm 22 remind us, point us, to this notice how psalm 22 ends verses 27 and following it's not this kind of depressing psalm you would think something that starts out my god my god why have you forsaken me and they pierce my hands and my feet is just all bad news but this is how it ends all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for the dominion belongs to the lord and he rules over the nations and the rich of the earth all the rich of the earth will feast and worship all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. And I think the last verse, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And I wonder if along the way as they heard him cry that from the cross and they sang the words of that familiar song in their head when they got here, if Jesus didn't hope they'd see, wait a minute. This is what God has been up to. This was God's plan. This Jesus is the Messiah. And when, though he was killed, though he was pierced, though his clothing was cast lots for, when he stepped out of the grave, all that he claimed about himself and all of those Old Testament promises from Moses through the prophets suddenly came together in a way that was undeniable. And the message of the resurrection spread and spread and spread so that 2,000 years later some of us set our alarms extra early to go sit down on a beach somewhere to watch the sun come up and sing a few songs and some of us just didn't do one service we're back again not because it's a holiday but because we are here I am here I guess I can't speak for everybody right I am here because I believe Jesus rose from the grave and that makes all the difference. That he is who he says he is and that what he did matters for me. I would kind of like to find the words or the tune to Doe of the Morning. I don't know if that's possible. You think it's... I guess I could ask around. If you come up with something, let me know. Because that must be some song to sing. That must be some song to sing. See, we have our own songs, I know. They're a little bit different than that one. And in just a few minutes, we're going to sing one of them. It's, it's one you may be familiar with. It's called We Believe. It's, uh, I think the newsboys popularized it, if you know them. But it's, again, it's, why do we sing it? Because it talks about the most important event in history. When God became man in the person of Jesus, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and then rose from the grave. We tell that story. Why? Because that's the story. That's the reason we're here. Not just because Jesus is a good moral teacher and set a good example, although he did those things but because he was dead and now he's alive. And if a, a man who could die and be resurrected says to me, hey, I can forgive sins, I'm inclined to believe him because I got some sins I need forgiven. Bet you do too.
And a man who says to me, there is hope for life after death, that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. When he rises again, I think, well, maybe he's not kidding about that. I mean, you know, streets paved with gold is pretty cool. But I'd rather hang out with the once dead man who's now alive. By the way, that's my definition of heaven. Wherever Jesus is, that's heaven. I don't care what the streets are paved of. That's a bonus. Where he is, I'm good with that. I hope you are too. If you're not good with that, if you're not sure about that, if you're not certain, if you don't know the forgiveness and the grace and the salvation that he offers, today I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you further so that you could receive that gift that Jesus came to offer himself to provide. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin. That was my sin. Your sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. It's an incredible exchange that's offered. It's the offer that this resurrected Christ makes to all who will call upon him. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be 